every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Hi, welcome to High Turnout, Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the County Clerk for Boone County, Missouri, and with me is my co-host. Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County. And today we have Scott Konopasik from Fairfax County, Virginia. He's going to be talking to us about his long career in elections that he's been all over the country for. And first, we'll start with our first question, which is how did you end up working in elections in the first place? Probably the important part of my origin story is that I grew up as an Air Force brat, and then I spent 15 years as an Army officer. So I've never lived one place a very long time. I I really wouldn't want to live in one place a very long time, Uh, which explains why my, my career over 25 plus years has taken me different places and given me great adventures and great experiences with people in, in different states and different localities and given me the opportunity to work in different political climates, the reddest of the red states, the bluest of the blue states, and a couple of purple states thrown in there. And there's really more that we have in common in elections and what is different from, from state to state. But how I got in originally was uh, I was a political consultant uh, and ran uh, a couple uh, political campaigns. And uh, I had some interactions with an elections office that I didn't really appreciate. Uh, And I remember wagging my finger, I'm gonna fix this. And a few months later, I applied for a job as the warehouse guy in this office. And I, I, w- I was hired, and three months later, I was the director of the agency. So that was how I, I, I came in, sort of as a reformer, I guess, uh, someone who, who had a passion about democracy uh, and our democratic institutions and wanted to see things done, done right. And then over my career, I, I kind of developed a, a skill set and expertise and reputation for being kind of a turnaround expert, you know, helping organizations that are some type of crisis uh, or recently experienced one and helping them turn around and and become highly performing, effective teams. And that's kind of what drives me. Uh, And and that's what took me initially from Utah to Washington State to California and a second tour duty in Utah, and, and then two more counties in, in California, and now here in Virginia on the other side of the country. This is kind of two questions, but I'm going to start here. So it seems unusual, A, for somebody to be able to be in an elections position in so many different places, uh, especially when you take into consideration that lots of times those jobs don't open very often. But what I wanted to ask, based on what you just said, is what kind of 
similarities or do you feel that there is a certain type of office, size of office, anything like that, that lends itself well to putting out a search that goes across the country? Um, Because I I mean, I could see a lot of small offices, especially not being able to pay very well, not being able to attract people, even in their own county, having a very difficult time attracting nationally. So can you shed some light on either one of those things, either how you've been able to make it work to be able to go to different places or how you think those places have successfully recruited you? Well, I, I think you're right in terms of the size of a jurisdiction. There's the size, the number of voters of, of a jurisdiction, but there's also the dichotomy between appointed and elected uh, election chief election officers. Uh, obviously, you can't, or it's hard to do a national search or even out of your county or jurisdiction search if the position is an elected position. If you were to appoint someone from the outside, they would eventually have to run to, to retain the job and retain the office. So elected offices are, really aren't looking for someone from the outside. Uh, the, the smallest jurisdiction I worked with was Snohomish County, Washington, which is Metro Seattle. And at the time we had 350,000 registered voters. And, and, and that's probably about the smallest size of a jurisdiction who would even think or have the resources to go uh, shopping around outside uh, of, of the locality to, to find some talent to, to do what needed to be done. People hire from the outside when A, they don't have a succession plan in place, or B, something bad has happened in, in the office and, and changes need to be made, except for the very, very large counties. Uh, like Orange County, San Diego County, two of the country's largest counties uh, are, are in the middle or have just completed a national search for, or for their folks. Those are examples of places that you wouldn't need necessarily either one of those uh, scenarios to, to want to go out and search for, on the outside. But a lot of people, they just like elections gets in your blood and, and you kind of get that elections virus and, and you just want to do elections. You have that passion. It just clicks with you. And election officials will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, because elections resonates with some and and not others. But once you get that, it, you you have a passion to can to to look for new opportunities, to build on your skills, to advance to. So there's a number of folks, uh, an increasingly larger number of folks that are mobile and and have moved around from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, not only within a state, but you know, across state lines. Scott, I want to know about your experience navigating the political waters in these various jurisdictions because I, you know, I'm a lifelong St. Louisan, and you know, I have a pretty good handle on kind of the political climate, the political culture here. But still, you know, I've stepped on landmines from time to time. Do you have any thoughts or advice on how to avoid those things, or maybe you've stepped on a few and that's just part of it? That it's it's going to happen yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm missing a few a few fingers and things. Uh, yeah, I've I've had I've had those experiences and and 
it's definitely more of a challenge when you don't have a political base in, in a jurisdiction, when you don't have a close relationship or pre-existing relationship with elected officials or, or political parties. But it's not really insurmountable. It just adds another level of complexity to negotiating through the political currents of the, of the jurisdiction. But there's also a honeymoon period and people cut you a little bit of slack up front because you're the new guy or the new gal and, and, and you're learning. And also, there's a, I think there's a hidden advantage in there as much as uh, everybody knows you're not beholden to anyone. So your impartiality and, and your fairness and, and that uh, you, you get a chance to demonstrate that that's really who you are. Uh, you're, you're not carrying necessarily baggage uh, that, that's associated with having a, a political past in a, in a jurisdiction, which doesn't mean that things don't follow you from one place to another uh, or assumptions about who you are, or what you've done. Uh, those, those always follow. But that, that's part of really, you know, any job. It's just not that common in our field of elections administration. So on that note, what, when you first come into a new position, what is the first couple things that you do to get acclimated and to kind of introduce yourself to the office? Um, you don't make any decisions. That is really the cardinal rule. And you spend months just watching, observing, asking questions, asking why, uh, why do you do it like this? Uh, you know, have you tried any other ways? And, and you just learn and you trust the people that are already there. Uh, and you communicate that trust by not changing things immediately and not making decisions. and not feeling like you need to put your fingerprints on everything right at the, at the very beginning. And that approach has worked out very, very well for me. And I've learned an awful lot from each organization that I've come into, not just about processes, procedures, technology, but also different perspectives and rationale for why it's good to do what, what it is that they're doing. You know, every place has its own political history, political culture. It's been traumatized by different types of events, types of fraud, types of controversy, uh, sometimes going back centuries. And there are strong biases for or against certain things like voting by mail. You know, there's a strong bias, inherent bias against it. East of the Mississippi, and there's a very strong bias uh, in favor of it, west of the Mississippi. So just recognizing that every place has its own political history and culture and way of doing things and respecting that and not trying to change it, try to recognize it, try to understand how it manifests itself. And, you, you know, I, th I think that's the listening, not making decisions and learning the political culture and respecting that are, are probably the most important things for someone who's moving even from one county to another within a state where the legal paradigm doesn't change. Uh, probably 80% of election administration is the same wherever you go. Uh, certainly the commitment of, of staff and, and their desire to do a great job is consistent. 
Uh, voting technology is pretty much consistent. You know, we only have a few flavors of voting technology, but it does get used differently. But you know, looking for the things that are different and, and recognizing the things that are the same, I, I think is very helpful too. Uh, you mentioned the, the differences in election administration between the Western and Eastern sides of the country. And I would certainly tend to agree based on my experience. What's been the most difficult thing to navigate or overcome? I wouldn't say uh, it's a difficulty, but it's a difference. And that is there is a conscious effort in statute and practice to interject partisanship in the administration of elections by having partisan boards of election, electoral boards that oversee all or part of the registration and election process. My experience out West is that that's avoided. It's not intentionally introduced as part of the system. Where here it's an inherent part of the system that goes back decades, if not centuries. And uh, in today's environment, uh, I I think the value of doing that uh, may have diminished from uh, what it was originally. Uh, I think we were at a time in this profession and in our country's history where we need less partisanship in the actual administration, nuts and bolts, nits and grits of elections than than more. Uh, so that's probably the biggest difference it is the, the conscious and deliberate introduction of partisanship in, in the process. Um, but the people, let, let me just be clear as well, uh, I don't have any issue with the with those individuals or the parties or uh, uh, factions that I'm working with here. Uh, you know, it's just part of the process is different. The assumptions are different. Uh, it, it, the people uh, are, are great people and they're honest people and they're trying to do their, their best. But it's an expectation of people acting in a partisan way from election officers on election day to electoral boards. And, and I think that's probably the biggest difference uh, from my experience so far between East and West. As you well know, a big variation election administration is the level of state control to the to the local election officials and some states are more top down or some are bottom up you've worked probably in each kind of example i wonder if you have any thoughts on pros and cons of how you know the state the chief state election official or officials should or could work with the local election officials i would say that the biggest challenge to centralize control is the desire to have the 3,000 voter jurisdiction do things exactly the same way as the three quarters of a million voter jurisdiction. But really that's not the way it translates. It's the the 750,000 voter jurisdiction is expected to do things the same way as a jurisdiction with 2,000 or 3,000 voters. That's just an unrealistic expectation or an assumption that seems to be baked in to a centralized model. And it's exaggerated a little bit more here in Virginia than other places because we have uh, election authorities are very decentralized here. Uh, We have very, very small electoral jurisdictions that administer elections. 
which, which kind of uh, accentuates that. The, the problem with decentralized and completely decentralized and, and hands-off with the state is that's usually the result of uh, an adversarial relationship between the locals and the state, which in and of itself is not necessarily healthy. Both roles are important, but the roles are very different. Uh, it's when they try to step on each other and do parts of each, get in each other's lanes that you know problems can happen. And you have to be willing to, in a decentralized model, you have to be willing just to accept that people are going to do stuff differently and different is good or different is fine. In fact, differences are inherently part of the security of the whole system of elections here in the United States. Uh, the fact that we have so many, you know, 3,400, 5,000, I've heard different numbers of electoral jurisdictions here in the United States makes the whole the system as a whole pretty difficult to compromise because you would have to compromise so many different places that do things so differently. If we had complete uniformity, which I hear some people argue for, you know, a statewide voting system, statewide registration, national voting system, there could be just a single point of failure to compromise the whole thing if you look at it from a security point of view. You know, or you only have to penetrate one part and you've compromised the whole. Whereas with our current decentralized model, there's so many places you would have to penetrate to compromise anything that it makes it virtually impossible. Speaking of the decentralized nature, and I think, I mean, I would agree that that's one of the stronger parts of our election administration model in the United States, but it does have issues when it comes to voter education and trying to get accurate and pertinent information out to voters. Um, well, can, can you speak a little bit to that? Absolutely. And I think there is a voter information issue, but I think it's a different one. I think voters need to understand that they don't vote for the president of the United States. We have the electoral college. All of our elections are state elections. There isn't really, if you think about it, there's no such thing as a federal election. We don't vote on anything on everybody's ballot across the country. Every ballot is a state ballot, state or local ballot. We elect people to federal office, but we don't have a federal election to do that. And if people understood that elections are governed by the state uh, and the expectation that there's a national consistency, uh, I, I think, can uh, be dissipated. Uh, but everyone thinks that they're voting uh, in a national election. That's probably another way of saying it. We do not have national elections in the United States. And voters don't really understand that. And I'm a political scientist, graduate degrees in political science. I've been doing this for 25 plus years. And it's still hard for me to explain the Electoral College to folks. And I learned a lot more about how imperfect that system is, I think, like most of us have over the last 12 months. So we have a very complicated system. And I think educating people about how our system works and why it does what it does, and it does what it does intentionally, whether you like it or not. Uh, whether for you're from a large state and you feel like your vote is watered down by small states, it doesn't really matter. That's just how the system works. It was designed intentionally to do that. 
And people just need to understand how it works better. You know, you've been in this uh, in this field for some time now. You've seen probably the good, bad, and the ugly. Um, over the last year, there's there's been probably more ugly than than we've had in, in years past. You obviously have a passion for this, but with everything that's going on, what motivated you to want to go be an election official in one of the largest counties in Virginia in the D.C. suburbs where there's a lot of you know, attention and scrutiny in this environment? Uh, that's, a, that's a complicated, it's not a complicated question, it's a complicated answer. So I decided in March 2020 that just as the pandemic was hitting, that the 2020 general election was going to be my last. I was going to retire. And I did. I retired in the uh, first week of January uh, this, this last year. I wasn't sure I was ready to retire, but I was ready for a break, if nothing else. A lot of folks told me that I couldn't retire, uh, including my wife. But that, that, I, I decided that was what I was going to do. I was going to pursue other things. But my last day at work was January 7th. And when I saw what happened January 6th, I realized I had too much more to do. And I, I felt like my time was not done. So I threw my hat in. I had personal reasons to come back here to Virginia. I have family here. My wife's parents and my youngest son and his wife live here. Always wanted to come here. Always been interested in Fairfax County. So I threw my hat in the ring and when offered the opportunity, I felt like it was my duty because of, because of my experience, because of the thick skin that I've developed over the years, the perspective that I have from watching the profession change over the last 25 years. I, I felt like it, it was particularly important for me to be a voice and to be a leader in the field of election administration going forward. I think that is a good segue into something that we were talking about before. Your opinions about speaking up as an election administrator, it's not still not really a common thing. Well, I have an advantage right now at this phase of my professional experience that uh, you guys don't have. And, and that is, if I get fired, oh, well, I'll just retire again. So I have less immediate concerns about job security, especially long-term, than I had previously. And that's kind of liberating in some ways. I, I know I'll be fine uh, regardless what happens. And that's empowering as, as well, uh, which is why I've dared to be bold in certain comments about the big lie. Uh, I took a lot of heat for actually using that term, but I think it's important that we recognize that a lot of the strife and misinformation that's going on right now is based upon lies. But the people who believe it don't know that. And there's too many people who are just passive about it and saying, oh, this will just pass. It will. And I think the time for passivity not just for election administrators, but for 
people who know better is over. I think it's the time to act and speak up about what we know to be true and then to be right and to call out those things that are just wrong and that undermine people's confidence, but also destroy and undermine the institutions. There's been a lot of institutional damage done and it takes, it's gonna take a long time for institutions to, to recover. And if we don't do it as the experts, who's going to? You know, it's, it's ironic that you know, public health officials are going through kind of the same thing. Uh, boards of education are, are kind of going through the same kinds of things that we're going through now. But what seems to me to be the case is it's the same small group of people who are purveying misinformation in all three of those areas. And it's a small group of people. So a larger group of people needs to speak out for uh, what they know to be right. It takes some moral courage to, to do that. It wasn't part of the job description when I started 27 years, back in 1995. Uh, it wasn't even part of the job description in 2000. But I think it's part of everyone's job description now. So, yeah, it's difficult. It's scary. There might be consequences. Everyone has to judge for themselves what they're willing to do. But uh, I, I think we need to speak truth. I think it'll be interesting to see to what extent the culture of this profession changes in the near future, or if it does for people to start having that mindset or moving in that direction. Because I mean, it's, at least for me, I, I never wanted to be the story. I never wanted to, to be on the front page. And so, yeah, that, it, it's a whole, it's a whole different mindset to, to take that approach. Yeah. Well, the, your job changed on you. You didn't realize it. It changed. Uh, and that's part of it now. And, and I've seen many of our colleagues who have recently exited the profession, you know, speaking up. And, and I'm encouraged that more and more folks, uh, and I'm really hopeful that more elected officials of all parties who know better will say so, will say something. So it's, it's not just on us as election administrators throughout the country. It's, a, it's upon all of America's leadership. I, I used an analogy uh, recently in an interview about bullying and bullies. And much of what's going on right now is classic bullying. And as human beings, we react different ways. There's a reason why people bully is because it works. Uh, it's because bystanders tolerate it. They don't want to get involved. Uh, and it's because victims are afraid and feel isolated because nobody wants to get involved. Uh, and the way you break that cycle is people get involved and you punch the bully back in the nose and then the bully goes away. At least that was my experience as a fifth grader. <laughs> I know that you gave advice about kind of the first thing to do in an office, but considering how you got into the field and all of the different positions you've been in, do you have any advice for people that are new that have been maybe 
piqued their interest by seeing instead of being, you know, repelled by what's happening, actually feel like they want to get involved, how they can do that? Sure. And I've hired a lot of young professional election administrators, and the future is very, very bright for this profession. If we can retain them, if we can hold on to them. There, there are some amazing young people out there who are, are rising up through the ranks. And the advice I would give any, any young person, younger person in that situation is don't homestead. Be willing to move around to get new experiences and new opportunities. And that could be inside the office as well as between offices. You know, if, if you work with election officers now, be willing to do GIS. Uh, or be willing to do uh, uh, equipment testing, or be willing to do voter registration. Learn the whole, the whole trade, the whole craft, uh, and don't be in a silo. And be willing to move for opportunities for growth and advancement. For years and years, my staff in multiple jurisdictions have complained that there's not really a clear career path in elections. Part of it is because you know, county government, local government doesn't do that very well. You know, there's no promotions and, and positions are not necessarily created and managed as a series. So the way to get around that and, and advance and grow in responsibilities and compensation and, and everything is to be willing to move on. And that's kind of been, you know, the hallmark of, of my career is I've been willing to move. And every time I've moved, it's been some type of advancement or a new opportunity. Uh, but you don't get those if you're not willing to move. So don't homestead in one function, learn the whole trade and be willing to move for opportunities. That's what I would tell any young up and coming election administrator. You mentioned you've hired a number of uh, younger administrators. What qualities do you look for when you're trying to bring somebody into an election office? Not election experience. That's the last thing I look at because it's easy to teach somebody about elections, but you can't teach critical thinking and you can't teach leadership. So I look for people who have supervisory management experience or proclivities, but also leadership ability and those people who can who are critical thinkers and are comfortable asking well why do we do this is there another way is there another way that the code could be interpreted you know so i i i would define critical thinking as a willingness and comfort in asking questions and learning being curious how do you suss that out in a in an interview or a hiring process? In an interview, you don't focus on technical questions. You, you focus on thinking questions. So you give them opportunities to problem solve uh, or uh, think on their feet. And during the screening process, I've, I've learned that some of the best candidates get screened out right up front because they don't come from uh, a public sector job, or they don't have any direct public election experience. Some of the best hires I've made have come from the nonprofit sector and the advocacy sector, because 
like I said, it's easy to teach somebody about elections. It's hard to teach people how, how to think and how to problem solve and how to innovate. And, and I think those are the traits that make uh, great election administrators. I have a totally unrelated question. Um, I noticed your Twitter, Twitter handle, at Election Yoda. Where did that come from? Oh, that was, that, that was a long time ago. For a short period of time, I tried to escape this profession and complete my PhD. And it was during that period of time when I was working, when I was a graduate student at the University of Utah, and I started uh, an election blog and, and did some consulting and that, that. I was just trying to brand myself as a wise old guy, you know. It was totally anonymous until about six, six seven months ago. Uh, when I came to, to Fairfax County, it, uh, people started noticing it, and, but, it's, but it's fun. All right. Thanks, everybody. That was another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. And a big thanks to Scott Konopasik for being our guest. We really enjoyed him. Hope you enjoyed it, too. And hope you listen next time to High Turnout, Wide Margins.